several weeks ago, with this sermon in mind, I got online and honestly did something I've never done before. And I, I promise you, I've never done this before. I did some research on a number of songs that many critics consider to be some of the greatest, most romantic love songs ever written and performed. And what I discovered after reading the lyrics to many of these songs and learning the meaning behind them is that there are a lot of different ideas about love and a lot of different descriptions given by these artists of what love is. For some, love is a feeling that comes over you. Singer Jackie Wilson put it in this way. He's saying, your love, it keeps lifting me higher and higher and higher than I've ever been lifted before. The temptation saying, I've got sunshine on a cloudy day. And when it's cold outside, I've got the month of May and my girl makes me feel this way. So, so love's a feeling. Other artists have also sung songs about love as if it's an impenetrable force, a bond that is inseparable. Ashford and Simpson sang, solid, solid as a rock. That's what love is. That's what we've got. And Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell sang, there ain't no mountain high enough. There ain't no valley low enough. There ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. Certain singers have also sung about the fact that love makes you do wild and crazy things that you would not normally do. That was Percy Sledge's point when he sang these lyrics. When a man loves a woman, he'd spend his very last dime trying to hold on to what he needs. He'd give up all his comfort and sleep out in the rain if she said that's the way it ought to be. Some musicians... Sing about love in a lasting way. Lionel Richie sang about endless love. And Dolly Parton sang, I will always love you. Billy Joel sang about love in an unconditional way when he sang, I took the good times, I'll take the bad times, I'll take you just the way you are. Some musicians have admitted their ignorance when it comes to love. The lead singer of the band Foreigner sang these famous lyrics, I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. So there are a lot of great songs with great lyrics about love. I also spent some time a few weeks ago looking up some of the greatest love stories of all time, both in film and in literature. Many of the writers and directors of these stories also have different views about love and have given different descriptions and definitions when it comes to the topic. Listen to a few of these quotes about love that I've taken from a few of these stories. Love is like the wind. Though you can't see it, you can feel it. Love is passion obsession, someone you cannot live without. Love can do anything you want it to do. An optimistic view of love there. You will never know love unless you surrender to it. Love is about making chances. Love is a smoke 
made with the fume of sighs, being purged, a fire sparkling in lovers' eyes. A little Shakespeare for you there. They say a, a life without love is no life at all. Being love is better than falling in love. To love another person is to see the face of God, Les Mis. Love is a leap. Love means never having to say you're sorry. So many descriptions, many definitions given about love by these great songs, from these great songs, and, and from these great stories. But of all the descriptions given, there is none greater than the description given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. If you have your Bibles, turn there now. 1 Corinthians 13. One of the greatest chapters on love and greatest descriptions given about love in all the Bible comes from the most unlikely of persons and the most surprising of places. Though you would expect a guy like Lionel Richie to write a great love song and expect a good love story from a movie entitled Love Story, you would not expect Paul to be the author of love in, in, in the Bible. And you would not expect a great chapter on love to come out of a book like 1 Corinthians. You would expect it to come from a man like David, right? The great psalmist? Or his son Solomon, who knew all about love? among other things, and, and often wrote about love, or even John, Jesus' disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, also referred to as the apostle of love. Yet it is 1 Corinthians 13 that has become the most well-known and beloved chapters in all the Bible. Passages from this chapter have been read in more weddings during more vow renewals and anniversary celebrations than any other. But there's a, a problem with this. Let me share with you the issue here with this. What many have done is they have taken this chapter out of this book in which it was written and they just sort of hung it out there all by itself with no context around it. That it's really become an entity in itself without any connection to anything else. And as a result, this chapter has really lost a lot of its true meaning and power. 1 Corinthians 13 was written to be understood in the middle of chapters 12 and 14 and it was meant to be understood within the context of this messy church in Corinth that had problem after problem. Though this chapter is, is so different from the rest of the book, stylistically, though it is different in that it is lyrical and rhetorical and beautiful, when you get into it, you find that it fits real nicely here. And when it's understood in context, when we peel back the petals off of this beautiful flower, we gain an even greater understanding of what love truly is. So my prayer this morning 
is that we would come away with an even greater appreciation for this chapter, chapter 13, than what we had previously. I also want to encourage you this morning as we study this chapter to not think about what it meant for you on your wedding day or in that card you received for your anniversary, but think about it within the context of 1 Corinthians. Think about it within this section of this book on the spiritual gifts. And to help you do just that, let me give a short review on what we have discussed so far. In chapter 12, we learn that though God had gifted the Corinthian church in every way imaginable, though they had all they needed when it came to spiritual gifts, the problem was they were not using their gifts in the proper way, in a God-honoring way, to build up the body and, and to edify their brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, what many were doing was they were rejecting the gifts that God had given them and they were going after other gifts they did not have. They were coveting the showy gifts, believing them to be more important and spiritual, and were exercising these gifts not to the glory of God, but to their but for their own glory and to put themselves on display. And this was causing further disunity and strife in the Corinthian congregation. And Paul tells them at the end of chapter 12, though you guys are coveting the showy gifts and neglecting the way God has uniquely gifted you and are exercising these gifts in a self-centered and self-glorifying way, he says in chapter 12, verse 31, I will show you a more excellent way. Well, in this chapter, chapter 13 Paul is going to explain to the Christians at Corinth that love is the more excellent way. And he's going to explain why that is by explaining what love is. First, he tells us, number one, love is the more excellent way because it is supreme. Love is supreme. Like we've said already, the Christians at Corinth believed that they had arrived spiritually. They thought they were, were the spiritual big shots and were very open and vocal and boastful about it. In the first three verses of this chapter, Paul is going to show them that it doesn't matter the gift. If one does not have love, they are a spiritual zero. Now, that sounds harsh, but that's his point. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, many have used this phrase, if I speak in the tongues of angels, to argue that tongues is more than just speaking a spoken language like they did at Pentecost. Many argue that this verse proves there is a heavenly language. Now, though this is not the main point of the passage, we, we really need to talk about this here, okay? Though we're going to talk more about tongues next week, let me respond to this because this is a hot topic in Christian circles today. Listen, if you use this text to argue that tongues is a private heavenly language, listen, you may not have the scriptural support you thought you had here. 
Let me explain. In this entire passage, Paul is using hyperbole, which is an intentional exaggeration to make a point. He's speaking hypothetically in this passage. Don't believe me? Just look at verse 2. Paul says, if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. Now, did Paul understand every mystery? Did he have all knowledge? Does anyone on this earth? No. So Paul is speaking hypothetically here. Now, some of you are saying, well, what about where he mentions unknown tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 too? Well, did you know that word unknown was added by some translators? The word unknown does not appear in the original Greek. And that word translated tongues just means languages. Just some food for thought, okay? We're not going to discuss that anymore this week, all right? We're going to talk about it next week. But I needed to chase that rabbit there because it's here in the text. Now back to the point of the passage. Here, Paul is using hyperbole to make the point that love is superior. He says in verse 1 that languages are nothing without love. They're a big fat zero. He says, if I can communicate Christ in multiple languages and even speak English, a.k.a. angel language, and I do not have love, I am a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You ever heard of gong or a cymbal? doesn't really add a whole lot, does it? It's really nothing. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't add anything. It, it, it's really nothing. And the same is true of a gifted believer without love. Other than talking about the miraculous gift of tongues here, I also believe that Paul is talking about the gift of eloquence in verse 1. You know, being an eloquent speaker is a great gift. They used to say about Jonathan Edwards that when he was done preaching, people would literally be lying on the ground crying out to God for mercy. Can you imagine that? And God used the power of his preaching to spark the first great awakening. I mean, he was a, in a class of his own when it came to preaching. Many believe Jonathan Edwards was, was one of the, the greatest preachers that, that America ever produced. Paul says that's great. You may have that gift of eloquence. You may have the gift of playing an audience like a grand piano. You may be able to move them to inspiration. You may be able to convince and persuade, move and convict. But if you do not have love, it doesn't matter. You're the equivalent of a screeching siren. Look at verse 2. Paul says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. First, Paul talks about having prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and having all knowledge. In chapter 14, prophecy is considered one of the greatest gifts. You know why? Because there are few things better than understanding and communicating the truth of God's word to others. 
Paul says you could, you could know all mysteries. You could have all knowledge and communicate that to others. But if you do not have love, you got nothing. Though prophecy is one of the greatest gifts, there is one greater than that, and that is love. He says if you have all faith, a faith that can move mountains. If you believe and trust in God in every way and continually walk in the faith you have and do not have love, your spiritual life amounts to nothing. Paul gives the ultimate example in verse 3. He says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says, if I die a martyr's death, for the cause of Christ and die without love for others, I gain nothing. My reward is zero. Did you know that, that in the early church there were some self-centered, self-glorifying and unloving martyrs? There were. I know that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but there were. There were some who wanted to die a martyr's death so that they would become famous like the apostles and, and earn a special spot in God's eternal kingdom. Paul says here, if you give up your life and do not have love, you gain nothing. You have no reward. That's amazing, isn't it? Do you now see, are you beginning to see how important love is? It doesn't matter what you bring to the table. If you lack love, you got nothing. The loveless person produces nothing of value, just noise. Let me ask you this morning. How are you doing in this area of your life? How are you doing in the area of love? Are you praying that God would make you more loving? If you care about the life that you're living for God in the least bit, get, get this, you must care about love. If you take your spiritual life seriously in the least bit, you must take love seriously because love is supreme. Number two, love is the more excellent way because of the way it is described. Like I mentioned in the intro, though there have been many definitions of love given in our society, though there have been many movies made and songs sung and books written about it, in verses 4 through 7, Paul gives us an accurate, excellent, and detailed description of love. In these four verses, he informs us that love is not an attitude. It's not a feeling. It's not this abstract concept that's difficult to define. It's an action. Love is an activity. Let me read verses 4 through 7 to you, and then I'll break these down and give a brief word on each of these descriptions of love. Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. First notice that love is patient. The word used here, translated patience is always used to describe patience with people 
And it refers to the ability to be wronged again and again and have the power to retaliate but never do it. It is the spirit that never retaliates. And this is strictly a Christian concept, folks. The Greeks thought of this as a vice, not a virtue. And many in our society feel the same way. We make heroes out of people who strike back. We praise those who let others have it and laugh at the ones who turn the other cheek. Paul says the one who loves refuses to retaliate. He then says love is kind. This is the flip side to patience. Patience says I'll I'll take anything from my enemies and kindness says I'll give anything to my enemies. I love the way John MacArthur puts it when commenting on this verse. Look at this quote up on the screen here. He says, Patience endures the injuries of others and kindness pays them back only with good deeds. I love that. Look at the next one. Love does not envy. Solomon called jealousy the rottenness of the bones. And there are two parts to it. One worse than the other. There is what is called superficial jealousy that says, I want what you have. And then there's a deeper-seated, more hateful level of jealousy that says, I wish you did not have what I don't have. Be honest, this is a struggle for us, isn't it? Especially in this country. I mean, it's, it's difficult for us to tolerate people being more successful than we are, having more than we do. It's tough for us to tolerate somebody who has a better job, a higher status, better things. Paul says, love does not envy. Love does not boast. Boasting is when one shoots off at the mouth about their accomplishments. Paul says, love doesn't do that. Love never blows its own horn. He says, love is not arrogant. Now, many think this to be the the same thing as boasting, but there is a distinction here. Boasting is the speech of pride, and arrogance is the action of pride. At times, it is translated in the Scriptures as being puffed up. The Corinthians were puffed up, weren't they? They thought they had arrived spiritually. They thought they had all the answers. They were the spiritual hot shots, and it showed all over their faces and in the way they carried themselves. Paul also says love is not rude. Love does not behave rudely. Being rude is the opposite of being selfless. Rudeness says, I could care less about what affects you. I will do what I want to do regardless. Paul says that's unloving. Love does not insist in its own way. Again, the opposite of being selfless. This is a big one for us as well, isn't it? Because we want things done and we want them done our way, don't we? Love is, is, is not possessive, demanding, stubborn, or dominating. Love is also not irritable. It does not have a short fuse. It's not ready to fight at the drop of a hat. It does not have to be handled with the kitten gloves. Love is not resentful. The word translated in my Bible as resentful literally means to keep a record. Paul, Paul's point here is that Love does not keep a record of wrongs, but instead forgives.
The next two I've combined, Paul says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. You ever heard someone rejoicing in their own sinfulness? Bragging about how much beer they drank the night before, or how many women they've been with, or how they let that one woman have it, you know? This kind of rejoicing is, is sickening to God, and it's the opposite of love. Paul says love rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in the truth as it is taught and as it is lived out by God's people. Love bears all things. The phrase bears all things means to, to cover something. Used here it means that love protects people. It covers people. It protects them. It doesn't gossip but goes the extra mile to stand up for people. Love believes all things. Now, Paul's not talking about being gullible here, okay? He's, he's not talking about not practicing discernment, but he is saying that love gives people the benefit of the doubt and sees the good in them. Love hopes all things. This goes a step beyond believing. Love refuses to give up on people even when society says they're beyond all hope. And lastly, love endures all things. The word endures is a military term that means to hold a position at all costs, even unto death. Used here, it means that love holds fast to people, even in the face of rejection. So that's the list. Now I know what some of you are thinking after looking through this list. Some of you are thinking, man, I, I struggle in some of these areas. Well, join the club. My toes are sore a bit as well. But this is what agape love looks like. This is what it means to be Christ-like. Do me a favor. When, when you go home this afternoon or, or later on in the week, you have this in your spiritual growth guide as well, a uh, challenge for you this week. But do this. Do me a favor. Do this. Revisit this list. And... Replace the word love with Christ. You know what you'll find? You're going to find that all of those statements will remain true. This description of love that Paul gives to us is so important because it shows us what it means to be Christ-like and shows us that we have a lot of work to do before we get there. Though we've been made right with God, we're not yet where we need to be spiritually, folks. Therefore, we need to move forward in these things and move forward with our God and King and continue in our pursuit of godliness. Third and finally, love is the more excellent way because love is permanent. Look at the first part of verse 8. Paul says love never ends. This is the main point of this passage. In the following verses, Paul is going to show us that all other gifts pale in comparison to love because love is permanent. Love is eternal. Paul continues by saying, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Though he does not 
Give us a comprehensive list of the gifts here. I believe that these are meant to represent all the gifts. More than likely, the reason Paul mentions the gifts that he does here is because these were some of the more showy gifts that the Corinthians were pursuing. Paul says, this is the reason love is to be emphasized. This is the reason that love is a more excellent way because it is permanent while these gifts are temporary. That's Paul's point here. All gifts, even the most significant, are, pa are passing away. They are a passing reality. They are not a forever item. Love, on the other hand, loves a forever thing. Therefore, it's to be valued above all else. It is to be desired. It is to be displayed. Look at verse 9. Paul says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The phrase in part is used four times here in verse 9, 10, and 12. That phrase just means a part of the whole, not the whole. Gifts are partial. Knowledge is partial. Prophecy is partial. I'm reminded of this each and every week as I make preparations to preach. I mean, the reason I spend hours upon hours each week studying is because, you know what, I only have knowledge in part. And when I preach to you, there are always things I don't know. And always more things I need to learn. Because God has only revealed so much to me, and He's only revealed so much in His Word. Now, don't misunderstand me. God has given us all we need in His Word, to be saved, and all we need to be who He has called us to be. But He has not given us everything. So when I study and preach, I'm limited to what God has given. But, but, but Paul makes the point here. This is great, y'all. When the perfect comes, what we now have in part, we will have in full. There is coming a day when we won't need preaching. Because we will have all truth. We won't need teaching because we will have all knowledge. Isn't that great? What a great hope that we have. We've got a lot to look forward to. Paul continues with this point in verse 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There is coming a day when we won't need books, sermons, classes, or Bible studies, we won't need any of those things because we will have all truth and all knowledge. So there won't be a need for the gifts he's mentioned. But you know what there will be a need for? There will be a need for love. There will be love. That's Paul's point. Paul uses a great illustration here. In verse 12, of seeing in a mirror darkly or, or dimly. The, the, the Corinthians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about here. Because in the day, back in their day, people made mirrors by flattening out pieces of metal and polishing it to a high shine. And of course, if you've ever looked into a metal mirror, you know it tends to be somewhat distorted. And after a period of time, that metal decays and that reflection becomes hardly visible. So Paul is saying here, for now, we are looking in a mirror that reveals to us a vague and confined image. What he means is this. There are limitations 
to what we see in terms of what we know about God. There is a vagueness to, to what we're able to communicate. Again, we have all we need to be saved, to be who God has called us to be, but we don't have everything, which is why we still need preachers and teachers studying and communicating the Word of God to us. But listen, there's coming a day when we will see without a mirror, face to face, the real picture, and we will know without any limitations the things of God in the same way that we are known by Him. That is a fantastic promise that Paul gives, isn't it? What a day that will be when we possess all knowledge and when we see things the way they really are. I'm excited for that day, aren't you? Now what about the perfect thing mentioned in verse 10. What is Paul referring to here when he talks about the perfect coming? Well, that word perfect is not in the masculine form. A lot of people think it's referring to Jesus, but, but, but I don't believe it is because of the form in which it's used. But I, but I think it is obvious that Paul is talking about our eternal life with God. He's referring to that future day when we will be made complete in Christ and when we will be in the presence of our Lord for all eternity. In verse 11, Paul continues to show the superiority of love by making the point that the spiritual gifts he has mentioned in this passage are, are elementary. Look at verse 11. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He says that to make the point that, that currently believers are still children spiritually. And spiritual children need these gifts. But there is coming a day when we will reach spiritual maturity, when we will be complete spiritually, and when we will have the knowledge we need and we'll have no need of these childish gifts. When we are in our future eternal state with the Lord, we will put away these childish gifts. But love, Paul says, love will remain. It remains. And again, Paul says all that so that we will make love a priority. Paul ends this chapter with one final word on the superiority of love. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, many of you are familiar with this verse thanks to country singer Alan Jackson, right? But have you ever stopped to think about the reason why love is greater than both faith and hope? You ever thought about that? Here's the reason why. Because faith is going to come to an end one day. Right now we walk by faith, not by sight. But someday we will walk by sight, not by faith. The same holds true for hope. Right now we hope. But Paul says in Romans 8, that which is seen we do not hope for. So there is coming a day when we will see and, and there won't be any need for faith and hope. That's why Paul says the greatest of these is love because love is forever. Your gifts, your abilities, 
your ministries, your talents, your faith, and your hope. All of these things are important. All of these things are needed, but they are for a time, folks. Love, however, love is forever. The point then is this, folks. We better learn to love here. We better learn to love here because love is the best thing. It's what validates all that we do. And unlike the other gifts believers possess, love is what we will be doing for all eternity. That's how important love is. So ask God for love. Learn from Him how to love and value it above all else because it is the more excellent way. Closing, let me say this. Though 1 Corinthians 13 from start to finish is considered by many to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest chapters on love in all the Bible, I believe one of the greatest demonstrations of love in the Bible is explained by Paul but in another book, the book of Romans. In Romans 5.8, Paul tells us, That God shows or God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no greater display of love than that. Than what God did for undeserving sinners like you and me by sending His Son. Scripture is clear that though God created man and woman in His image, in a perfect state, and in right relationship with Him, man and woman chose to reject God's rule and reign in their life. Man chose to rebel against God, to go at life on his own. Man basically said, I want to be the king of my world. I don't want to answer to God and do what he tells me to do. I don't want him as my king. I want to call the shots. I want to be my own king. So man did not like God's rules and he rejected his authority. And we all know what happened next, right? As a result, Sin enters into the world, and as a result of sin, death enters in as well, and the world becomes chaotic. And this picture-perfect life with God is shattered. Though God created everything right and good, sin comes in and ruins and wrecks God's perfect world. And you know what? God could have left it that way, couldn't He have? He could have, he could have said, I've had it with man, and could have wiped His hands of the whole thing. But instead, we see as early as chapter 3 of the first book of the Bible, a loving and merciful and gracious God committing Himself to this broken world. Though He could have left this world, and more importantly us, in this broken and fallen state, instead we're told He demonstrated His love for us by sending His Son to step into the world and to restore it and redeem it. God chose to reach out to us again and accomplish salvation for us through Christ so that we might be made right with Him. That's love. That's love. For those of you here this morning who have yet to turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, I have news for you. You have yet to experience this kind of love. The greatest love the world has ever known. The love of a heavenly Father. God invites you in His Word. And I invite you this morning to enter into this relationship. The greatest relationship you will ever have and experience. 
I invite you to receive this gift of salvation by turning from your sins and by trusting in His Son, the Lord Jesus, for salvation. Let's pray.